Yes, that's what I'm talking about. 52 episodes, 52 weeks. That's one year of abstract under our belts. Thank you so much for being here this past year. Super excited for 52 more episodes over the next 52 weeks. Before we hop into season two or year two of Abstract, this week we have a re-release of the most streamed episode from our first year. So sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 37, featuring Jean Westenberg talking about the opioid crisis and epidemic, coming to us not live, but from British Columbia, one more time. The following episode will be discussing substance use, which may be triggering for some of you. If you're struggling with your mental health, please seek help from a health professional. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. And please never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard on Abstract. Jean Westenberg graduated McGill University with a Bachelor of Science in Biology and a minor in Psychology. He then took a gap year during which he completed a graduate diploma in business and worked at a virtual clinic as a medical office assistant. In September 2019, he began his Master of Science in Experimental Medicine at UBC under the supervision of Dr. Michael Krauss. His research interests include addiction and concurrent disorders, homelessness, and healthcare systems. His main objective in research is focused on improving the health outcomes of vulnerable individuals with complex and traumatizing lifestyles. He's currently piloting a survey on opioid overdose risk and is a co-investigator of a randomized controlled trial which will provide insight into the pharmacological treatment of opioid use disorder. In his spare time, Jean immerses himself in sports. He was on the rowing squad during his undergrad at McGill and is currently part of the triathlon team at University of British Columbia. On weekends, you can find him grabbing beers with friends and spending time outdoors. Jean, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Hey, Jeremy. How's it going, buddy? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Always exciting because you never know what's going to happen on Abstract. You never know. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, by the way. Yeah, this is this is going to be uh, smooth sailing. We're just going to learn some stuff. I mean, you already learned the stuff, so I'm here to learn from you. You're just going to pour all that knowledge <laughs> out right onto the floor. We're going to be slipping and sliding on that knowledge. I just wanted to quickly comment. You, yeah. and it appears almost every other graduate student I've spoken to, are yeah. big fans of drinking alcohol and being outside. <laughs> I don't know if that's like a universal uh, prerequisite for being a graduate student, but you're definitely... I think just, you know, catching up, what we're doing right now, sharing knowledge. You can do it over a glass of beer, too. It's true. It's true. This is, uh, I guess, maybe somewhat in between uh, a poster presentation and grabbing beers in terms of formality. So we're going to strike right. that balance. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really excited to see that your research interests touch on addiction. This is something that I've wanted to actually discuss with somebody for some time now. In my undergrad, I actually tried to get into a lab of researching addiction, but I had absolutely no experience whatsoever on the topic. Yeah. So I was uh, yeah. promptly rejected. But uh, sorry, to hear, sorry know, to hear that. <laughs> it's all good. So tell yeah. me a bit about how you got into research on addiction. Is is there some kind of personal backstory you'd like to share with us, or just more of uh, you know, with your biology background, curious about the mechanisms? Absolutely. So, yeah, I did my undergrad at McGill in, in biology. I focused mainly on neurobiology, so took preliminary neuroscience classes and really loved that kind of stuff. Um, I found that super super interesting. Um, I was always guided towards mental health just because it was 
everywhere around me, friends, family, I thought it was pretty prevalent. So I really enjoyed studying it and I wanted to help. So I started volunteering a couple places. I volunteered at the, the Douglas Institute, Montreal, um, where I worked in the intensive care unit. And I, I love, absolutely love that kind of stuff. So that really gave me a preliminary view of what I could do and what population I wanted to help. And then I started looking around for masters in addiction and mental health. And then I landed upon Dr. Michael Krauss. I mean, initially I, I sent a couple emails out to a lot of different supervisors, obviously. Sure. And you know, I'll call him Michael from here on out. Uh, Dr. Sure. Krauss took me under his wing and uh, he's a huge addiction and concurrent disorders professor in Vancouver and in the world. And that was a, a, something I couldn't really pass up on. I moved to Vancouver and now I'm, I'm studying this kind of stuff in, in, at UBC. That's a big move moving out west. A lot of people want I mean, to go it, there. So you're, you're where the action's at. <laughs> wasn't very hard. Didn't take much convincing, to be honest. <laughs> you know, lots of outdoors, lots of beers. I guess, I guess you're in your natural habitat. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's sweet. So yeah, th that was my path towards it. I mean, it wasn't set in stone from the beginning. I was just grappled by the fact that all of us can be so addicted to things. And we are in our everyday. So, you know, I'm just focusing on illicit drugs, which is different than what we sometimes talk about, like gambling or people are addicted to a whole bunch of different things. So yeah, it's just how the way would you we distinguish between the nature of addiction to something like a drug versus something like social media? In the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic manual for mental health, addiction is kind of defined as something that you change your behavior because of it. You seek it rather than do other things. It kind of guides your behavior or it has a central point in every single day of your life. And in terms of social media, all of us use it every single day, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like caffeine. Like people might be addicted to caffeine, but it's not considered an addiction as per mental health disorder definitions. I'm just taking caffeine example because it's also a drug and it's something that people have every like you know I've had two already today. Um, <laughs> where I like I'm like I'm fired up, but um, so same thing for social media. It's it's really it's a really really thin line. It's a good question. Do you personally know anybody or brush shoulders with anybody who is doing research on like the more social aspect of addiction as opposed to drug abuse, for example? Not really. I mean, I'm sure that that's done. It, people, if you study social media as an addiction or study anything else but illicit drugs as an addiction, it might not have as big of an impact on people's health than, mm -hmm. for example, heroin. So addressing the problem of addiction with illicit drugs really helps improve the health of individuals. Whereas mm -hmm. if you try to study addiction for social media or caffeine or, or things that we don't consider mental disorders, I'm quotation marks it won't really help their livelihood in day to day. I don't know. Do you think part of the reason why there's not the same level of stigmatization in addiction to social media is because for one, obviously the health impacts, like you said, are mm -hmm. diminished, but mm -hmm. also that it is social and we see things that are pro-social as being good. Absolutely. And I think that we're still kind of in that war on drugs phase. I think that we're still suffering a bit from the idea that people who use drugs are not members of society. You know, and yeah. I think that people who use social media, i.e. a lot of the people we know, aren't necessarily stigmatized in the same way because everyone does it and everyone uses it and it has less of a detriment to their to their health for sure. Yeah, it sounds like the coffee 
situation, right? Everyone drinks I mean, coffee, so how could that exactly. be wrong, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It, it, that's exactly it. And everyone drinks alcohol. You know, yeah. there are some religions in some countries that don't allow the use of alcohol. And so, you know, what I, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting thought process, but what if you flipped it? What if a country said no alcohol, no cannabis, which are the two most prevalent drugs, no nicotine, which yeah. are the most prevalent drugs in North America. And you just said, you know what, let's legalize like heroin. I'm just you know uh -huh. rambling, but it seems like alcohol and cannabis are legal in Canada and are less stigmatized than the other drugs. Obviously, heroin has much more of an addictive profile than other drugs biologically. You know, that's probably why it's not legal. But it's it's interesting to think about, though. Let's actually talk a bit about the addiction profile of something like oh, heroin. I, I mean, I feel like that's something that I don't know a lot about. Maybe the listeners yeah, might yeah. not know either. Like, what makes heroin addictive? Why is it so difficult to put it down? Yeah. Uh, maybe you can start at the beginning. Uh, like, opioids are neuropeptides. So these are small proteins produced by neurons. And their main role is to inhibit pain signals in multiple pathways of the brain and spinal cord. So that's kind of the baseline. And they also trigger release of endorphins, which muffles your perception of pain and boosts feelings of pleasure and, you know, creating a temporary but powerful sense of well-being. Mm -hmm. That is kind of what opioids do. And you have opioids in your body at all times. And those are called endogenous opioids. So within endogenous is within in Greek. If you take heroin or exogenous opioids, so opioids that are not produced from your body, so from mm -hmm. outside, you're essentially providing that same feeling that you get, which, as I mentioned before, has to do with inhibiting pain and boosting feelings of pleasure. Why wouldn't you want that again? Mm -hmm. You're essentially hijacking that mechanism and creating a, a feeling that is so hard to get naturally. You're saying, okay, well, obviously, if, if heroin provides some beneficial effect, What's so bad about continually going back to it? Well, mm -hmm. with coffee, it provides a beneficial effect, right? It's a, a stimulant, so I feel more wakeful and more energetic and more able to focus, yeah. for example. There's nothing wrong about going back to coffee every course, day. So, like, where where do we kind of draw the line in the sand here? Is it black and white or is it a little bit more of a gray area here? It's a good question. You know, illicit drugs have also, you know, plethora of medical, physical, and social complications. For instance, caffeine, and we were speaking about it before, social media don't have, right? For one, you can overdose very easily on heroin. That's a way too real of a problem. You know, we're in the middle of an opioid overdose crisis in North America. And, and so, you know, you can't really overdose on social media. You, like, you can't die prematurely due to it. Got so it. that's that's number one off the off the hop. That's exactly like that's the biggest thing. Then other than the premature mortality part, uh, like I'm not dismissing it. There are other you know medical and psychological complications. So this includes like, you know, self-harm, suicide, polysubstance use. So using other substances, depression, anxiety, transmission of bloodborne viruses, hepatitis A, B, C, D, increases in bacterial infection. You know, th those are medical. Okay, There's the also social on. problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just rambling here. No, but, no. You know, it's, you're making a strong point. I mean, there are also social problems with it. You know, like it, it creates an adverse family environment, stigmatization. A lot of these people are involved in prison systems and incarceration. 
So yeah, I mean, I, I guess I guess it is more black and white than I put it out to be, just because of all the medical yeah. and and psychological complications to it. The biggest one is overdose, right? Like that's that is above and beyond the difference here. Okay. There's a question that I feel like the listeners might be thinking about asking. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I myself have thought about this a lot because I'm not someone who's ever really used opioids mm-hmm. regularly or at mm-hmm. all. I mean, I've, I've, I've had the odd morphine drip, you know, after surgery. But have you found a way to describe or understand what kind of mental state is experienced by somebody who's taking a drug like heroin as, as someone who presumably doesn't take it themselves? How could we as just non-drug users begin to comprehend what that's like to just somehow understand how this addiction is so powerful? It's so grappling. I, I just want to start by you know mentioning if anyone listening has any problems with mental health or any traumatizing problems in the past, uh, maybe you know take this with a grain of salt or maybe skip over it. It's, it's just the way I explain it sometimes is I, because I'm trying to explain it in the best way possible that it, it's it's sometimes difficult to, to understand. Okay, thank you. I've heard it described in several ways. The one that really stuck with me, and I think that we can all understand, is that it's as if you're in a cold, wet bed, and someone comes to put a a warm, dry blanket over you and just just cuddles you. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've heard it is like. It's just it, it takes you out of your pain, your misery, any traumatizing things that have happened in your life, and it it really just cradles you and gives you the care and support that you so cherish and that we all so cherish. That's that's the most impressive way that I've seen it described because I can immediately understand how that would be something I would want to get every single time. Yeah, it's a powerful image. Yeah, right. I think that you, you can definitely connect with it. So my follow-up question to that then is mm-hmm. – if this provides such like an analgesic effect to somebody mm. who is suffering so much, is yeah. the incidence of addiction higher in people who have who are already suffering from something, let's say, like depression or who have real life traumas? If I am living a life that is about as close to a life of perfection as you could imagine, that I have a supportive family, I'm financially free, I don't have any other stressors, my health is fine, am I just as likely potentially to get addicted to heroin as somebody else, given that we, let's say, maybe have... As, as many other things equal as possible? I would say no. Uh, my lab is called Addiction and Concurrent Disorders. And, and it's important to note that like concurrent disorders don't mean comorbid. Concurrent disorders are just disorders or conditions that a person experiences along with substance use. And so those are usually intertwined. And a lot of the times one feeds off the other and vice versa. A lot of the patients that I see have had traumatizing experiences in their childhood or do have depression and do have anxiety or do have really, really bad pain. And to deal with that, maybe initially or still to this day, started with opioids and that helps blunt that or shield them from it. So, you know, there was a prescription opioid epidemic, I want to say, in the early 2000s in the States, as I think people are aware of with Purdue Pharma and the pharmaceutical companies. And that increased the amount of people who were dependent on opioids. Transitioning to heroin from that was quite common, actually, but less so if you had a supportive family 
a good physician or provider that would help you, a good psychiatrist that can help you if you needed it, right? Mm -hmm. These are all things that if you don't have, you'll keep using and you have decreased chances of managing it and decreasing your use to eventually be abstinent from it. It's it's really crazy. I'm coming back to this image that you painted before with the warm blanket. And it's just kind of making me realize how universal and critical it is that every individual has that feeling at some point in their life and ideally for extended periods. Everybody goes through times of increased stress and, you know, decreased mood. But even having the knowledge or, or at least access to things other than drugs that can provide some kind of relief just seems to be fundamental to living a normal, healthy life. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, the way I also sometimes look at it is we all have different coping mechanisms that we have built in us that we've grown up with and that have become our way of dealing with tough times, for instance. Right. And I think that, you know, particularly COVID has brought a lot of that out in us. Personally speaking, if I feel like I'm having a bad day or a bad week, I will try to go skiing, go see friends or go to the gym just to get my mind off of it, to kind of hit the refresh button. If you were born in a family that didn't do sports, that didn't support each other, that weren't there when you were needed them, it becomes pretty easy to seek other ways of dealing with that stress and most of the time or easily you could turn to drugs, especially if your friends do it, especially if your parents do it. That That's a very real problem for some people is that, you know, their parents not, might not be there for them. They might be too drunk, too high to take care of them. And so if the child sees that, they'll learn that behavior as a way to cope. And then they grow up with a substance use disorder. It's it's very hard and it's very, very intricate. It's very complicated. It involves a lot of different things, right? It's not only the biological aspect of it. It's also social, psychosocial. Mm-hmm. How big of a role do you think education might play in mitigating the overuse yeah. and abuse of drugs like this? And also, what is the current state of education on these topics? I don't really remember learning about it explicitly or very much in my academic career. Education is huge. Not only, you know, we, we have we have sex ed, which is great because that teaches us about risky sexual behaviors. I don't remember having, you know, a risky drug taking course. It's kind of that stigma where no one wants to talk about it. But yeah. if we don't talk about it, then people are going to do it without knowing. And that's dangerous. And that's what leads to overdose and other problems. Right. Not to not to kind of over yeah. oversimplify the, the situation. Obviously, it isn't just like education equals eradication of opioid use, but it, definitely an important tool. But you know, compared to the HIV epidemic, if you educate people on risky sexual behaviors, you decrease the prevalence of HIV and AIDS. If you could do the same thing for opioid using, and that involves like harm reduction measures, is called then you would theoretically see a decrease in mortality, morbidity, and prevalence of use. You could also look at it with alcohol in the States, right? Legal drinking age is 21 in Quebec and all of Canada is 18, 19. So a lot of uh, Canadian kids start drinking kind of 16, 17. So that by the time they reach young adulthood, 
they know exactly how much to drink, not to go overboard. Whereas I think in the States and from what I've heard with friends, it's less prevalent early on. And it's kind of like as you hit 21, you start drinking heavily um, and it kind of hits you hard. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard the same. Even that's not not necessarily explicit education, but just kind of having it be part of the social social world. Not that we're saying here that you should start using opioids at a young age so you learn how to manage the exactly. use. Obviously, you know that, that that doesn't cross over here. In the introduction, you mm-hmm. mentioned that you're you're kind of looking to improve health outcomes. Yeah, that's pretty. That's a pretty broad goal. How do we even begin to tackle a problem like improving health? in a population? Where do we begin? (laughs) Yeah, good question. So I guess health (laughs) outcomes is there (laughs) exactly for that reason is is to be broad because you can improve it by decreasing their prevalence for bacterial infections. Um, You can decrease their prevalence for self-harm or suicidal ideation, stuff like that, all those mental health or biological problems. And so that's kind of what we mean by health outcomes in general is just anything under the sun that will make this individual live a more fulfilling life and be happier with the way they live. In terms of my own research, and maybe you can narrow down into that, I study mostly opioid use disorder. And a lot of the problem is overdose and the fentanyl crisis that we're seeing right now in the drug supply. And so increasing health outcomes would be lowering their risk for overdose, which would be learning how to deal with increased fentanyl in the drug supply and learning how to reduce the harms if they are taking drugs to stabilize that use, eventually bring it down. So fentanyl is a term that's that's come up in recent years. This is a new opioid as far as I'm concerned. It's one that's actually more potent and powerful than morphine. Why is fentanyl creating such a big problem now? Yeah, right. Take a step back. Opioids in general come in a lot of different forms. There are what we call opiates, which are naturally occurring in the resin of the opium poppy. So that would be like morphine, codeine. And then there also exists synthetic or semi-synthetic opioids. So these are ones that are pharmaceutically made. Mm -hmm. And that involves hydrocodone, oxymorphine, heroin, and fentanyl. Fentanyl, in the early 60s, it came up for medical purposes. And it is about 100 times stronger than morphine about 50 times stronger than heroin. So it just makes its distribution a lot easier. You need less to mm-hmm. get the same effect. Sounds like it's also much easier to overdose. Exactly. And th- that that's the root of the problem is that what is happening now is that we're seeing heroin being spiked with fentanyl, which mm-hmm. means that when individuals take the heroin, they're maybe unaware of how much fentanyl is inside of it. And so if you take a certain amount of heroin, and there's more fentanyl in it than you thought, or if you thought that there is none and there is, you're almost for sure going to overdose. A, a lethal dose of heroin, just in terms of numbers, is about 30 milligrams. Mm-hmm. The equivalent legal dose of fentanyl is three. So you can see how that can really increase the overdose if you don't know what's inside of it. And and I need to mention too, fentanyl is tasteless. You can't smell it. There's no difference in color or texture So you can only really tell if your dealer tells you or if you get it chemically tested with strips and and see if that does exist, if there is fentanyl in what you're taking. But that's creating a huge issue right now. Okay, so 
I don't always ask my guests for specific numbers, but from what I gather, you're a numbers guy. So can you give us an idea of what the numbers are looking like right now in terms of the opioid crisis, specifically with fentanyl, maybe? So the opioid overdose crisis was declared a public health emergency in the province of British Columbia and in all of the United States in 2016, 2017. That's kind of when we started recording the numbers systematically. Since January 2016 to about you know halfway through 2020, we've seen in Canada over 17,000 opiate overdoses. Wow. That's mind boggling. And well, yeah. I didn't know this when I lived in Montreal, but 17,000 people have overdosed. And, I, and you ask for numbers, so I'm, yeah. I'm gonna give them to you. 2018 alone, 4,500 about roughly people died, um, which is about one life every two hours. And if that still isn't enough, That's... and I'm sorry, I'm just laying it, I'm lay, I'm kicking it on. In 2017, the life expectancy of Canadians actually did not increase for the first time in four decades. And that is largely attributed to the opioid overdose crisis in young males primarily. That's insane. So that's just Canada. That's just Canada. And if I, you know, if I expand and go to the U.S., which is the worst country in the world in terms of this, I hope you're sitting down, more than 47,000 people have died of overdoses since 2017. And that is in large part due to fentanyl, as we spoke about before. I, I have the numbers here in front of me. Opioid deaths due to fentanyl increased by 71% from 2013 to 2017. Just just to, to put it in perspective mm -hmm. as to how many lives are lost. This is a part where I have, I have difficulty talking about it because in, in British Columbia, for instance, COVID has been less of a factor as it has in other parts of Canada and other parts of the world. But the overdose crisis has only gotten way worse. So it's, it's, it's a tough place because the whole world is focused on COVID as yeah. they should be. I'm not, I'm not taking that away from it. But there are also subpopulations from the general population, people who use drugs, who are suffering as well. More so now, you're saying, because the focus is totally shifted. More so now. In British Columbia in the month of November 2020, there were about five deaths per day due to overdose. Oh, my God. I, I'm not sure about the COVID numbers. <laughs> it's funny. I follow the overdose numbers more than I do the COVID numbers. Yeah. <laughs> That's about the same or... COVID numbers are less than that. So it's just something that I, I think about a lot. For sure. And how to best manage our resources, right? Because the world is focused on COVID, as I said, as it should be. But there are other public health emergencies that aren't getting the attention they need. I'm so glad that you're here telling us about this now, reminding us that there are issues that existed before COVID and that will continue to exist after and are getting worse during. This is one of those things that it really does not seem like it's getting enough airtime is that when you have a pandemic like this, all eyes are in one place and everything else that was problematic gets less airtime, it gets less money, gets less focus, less research. And so it is, it is good, it is critical that we have people like yourself who are still, who still have your eyes on other things that are also important. So that's critical. Thank you for sharing those numbers. Some of those are absolutely insane. I mean, if you want to rewind and listen to those again for a mind blow, 
I, I invite anyone to, to, you know, just, just Google it, Google Canada overdose. I mean, it, it's, it's really tough to, to deal with. It's a lot, a lot of death and it's, it's hard to deal with and to, to think about, but it's the reality and it's what we have to work towards improving. And so hopefully my research helps with that. And I hope that I've encouraged people to maybe listen to a bit more media with relation to that, maybe do some research on your own, or maybe reach out to a friend who maybe has had trouble or is having trouble with their mental health or their substance use. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for that. Thank you for bringing attention to that. It's important. Yeah. Okay. In terms of improving health outcomes, just to build mm-hmm. on that po- uh, question that yeah. I was asking before, you say you're looking to improve health outcomes of individuals with complex and traumatizing lifestyles. We've spoken about the trauma a bit. What exactly is entailed in this word complex? This definitely caught my eye. What is a complex mm-hmm. lifestyle? Yeah. Everyone has a complicated life in terms of day-to-day, but some people have it more complicated than others. For instance, if you grew up in a family that was supportive, you went to high school, then you graduated, went to university, that I would say is not very complicated. But, you know, adding something in there, divorce, maybe with your parents, your parents divorce, that's adding a complication that others might not have. That's just one of them. And then, you know, I kind of look at it as a tree. And if you add all the complications, you can just end up with an array of complications. You know, I'm thinking about you have divorce and then you have one family member that wants to take custody of a child, another family member who's starting to use because, I don't know, because of the divorce or because of some other pre-existing mental health conditions, then you never see that family member again. Maybe a family member went to jail. Maybe a family member died. These are all complicated lifestyles that I mean when I'm describing my research mm-hmm. because it has a lot to do with opioid use and, and, you know, illicit drug use. I like this idea of like a branching tree. If your parents get a divorce, that kind of gives you two branches of your tree now. And so the actual system where I'm just imagining Mm -hmm. the tree is like a representation of how complex your life is. And every time it kind of bifurcates, you get this intricate branching system of complexities that are all kind of interrelated. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't, I'll give my own past an example my parents were never divorced. I did all the steps. I went to, you know, primary, secondary, CJEP, university undergrad without ever there being a lot of adversity, right? That has really been easy for me, truly. And I, and I know it and I'm aware of it and I'm thankful for it. But you can see that every step of the way, there could have been a bifurcation, which would have led to increased chaos, increased complications that other people might be dealing with. Mm-hmm. I really like this framework because it, it, it kind of, it, it seems like it lends to the possibility of regaining control at every step of the way. Obviously, if you're a six-year-old and your parents get a divorce and you have a custody battle, there's really not a whole lot that you can do. But I get the sense that as the complexities and the uh, adversity gets continually packed on later in life, we hopefully are better able to mitigate the negative effects of those things. If I'm 25 and my parents get a divorce, I'm not even living at home anymore. Like what kind of strength-based approaches have you come across in the field that can be used or, or, or taught to people, sh- shared with people? I'm thinking kind of in the context of education that can allow us to take 
this kind of growth mindset approach to overcoming difficult aspects of life, things that would make it, as you say, complex. I think that a lot of things can be done in terms of educating the person on what they can do or where they can get help, having a good social support network, talking about issues that they have instead of keeping them in, uh, going to a psychologist or a child psychologist or a child psychiatrist. These are all things that can help to talk about issues, to take it off your shoulders and you share the weight with other people. And especially if you're having difficulties and that's where it's difficult because if the parents don't see a problem and the child doesn't voice a concern, then it might just go unnoticed. And these are things that I think in, in for instance, high school can be taught and talked about if it's not spoken about at home. So in, in school, you can talk about, you know, if you're having problems or if you think something isn't being addressed in your household or with your friends, talk to someone else about it and bring it up because there's no education about that right now. And I think that that's a huge problem because people don't talk about it. People keep it in and it leads to a lot of built up stress. Okay, so we've spent a lot of time talking about all of the negative aspects of drug use. There have got to be some treatments. How, how can we actually help people? What kind of infrastructure do we currently have that we can use to, to treat these kinds of, these kinds of addictions? So I'll, I'll focus on opiate use disorder specifically. There are a couple things you can do. Obviously, the ones that we've spoken about already, psychosocial. So this could be counseling, peer support, cognitive behavioral therapy. Those are pretty common and, and across the board, very well understood and effective for Opioid use disorder as well, there's pharmacological treatments. So what is called substitution therapy or opioid agonist treatment. And so the idea of that is to get someone who uses illicit drugs to take prescribed medication. So that would deal with their craving, their pain, and their withdrawal symptoms. Instead of going on the street and using illicit drugs, which might increase the risk of overdose because they might not know if there's fentanyl inside of it. So that just kind of helps bring it all around. And then there's also harm reduction approaches. So safe injection sites where people can inject any illicit drugs that they have and have a nurse there supervising in case they do overdose to revert the overdose. You can, you can reverse an overdose. Yes. That's, yeah, oh, that's absolutely. fascinating. Sorry. So rewind the amount of no, the numbers I was giving before are fatalities. I'm not even talking about non-fatal overdoses. So you can revert an overdose with what is called naloxone or Narcan. And so it essentially just removes any opioid that is bound to the receptor and it brings the person back, essentially. This is like a, this is like a, an overdose defibrillator. I mean, it looks like an EpiPen and yeah. it's the it works like an EpiPen. You stab the person in the side of the leg with it and it shoots it inside. And sometimes it may take several different hits depending on how much they've taken, depending on what their dependence and, and how dependent they are on opiates. But this is commonly misunderstood that you can reverse an overdose. And so if you have a naloxone kit, you can get them for free at the pharmacy. You can carry one with you, it's just like an EpiPen. This is with harm reduction, ways that you can help reduce the amount of mortality that we're seeing today. I just got full body chills when you said you can walk around with this. I have one, you know, God forbid, I've never had to use it. Yeah. But I see patients that we ask them how many times they've had an overdose. They give us a number. I've I ask how many times have you seen someone overdose? And they might say, I've seen 20. I've helped reverse 17. It's just to give in perspective, 
kind of how many are fatal, there are a lot more that are non-fatal that are happening as well that we don't have numbers for. Okay. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. That's uh, that's important. Wow, crazy. That that is that is crazy. I'm glad we got that in then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you never know what's gonna come in right before the end. Okay, woo. This is. Uh, I can just I can just chat. I can just chat all day with chat you right all now. Day. That's <gasps> coffee number three. <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness. All right. So, final question. You're standing at the foot of an auditorium. And it's, it's, it's like a thousand person, not a torn, massive room packed to the brim. All eyes are on you. What do you tell the audience? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Old corny joke. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do I tell the audience? Um, enjoy everyday life. So this might sound corny, but work is not everything. If you enjoy work, that's awesome. But it's hard as a master's student, and I think people who are just starting their careers will think that work and life is everything, but I think that there has to be other things as well, and small things that are done every single day will lead to big changes, whether it be physical health, mental health. These are all things that we can do on a day-to-day, reach out to friends, go to the gym, go for a quick run. All of these things can be done every single day that we don't necessarily want to do every single day, but are important to our well-being. And I just named things that for me would help me, but I'm sure that there are other people that play guitar or play music or go read a book. And and if your day is really full and you don't think you have time for it, I would encourage you to make time for it and to really build it in your schedule. Awesome. I back that hundred percent. Work-life balance. I used to ask my my guests about about work-life balance at the end. So you kind of just snuck that one in there without me even having to ask explicitly. Thank you work-life balance is so important that's essentially what i would tell the audience because i mean during covid i i felt so overwhelmed that i had to take time to myself and i think that's very important especially at the start of our careers yeah good for you for for figuring that out for yourself and it's going to look different for everybody right like you said if you love your work and you actually do feel rejuvenated and energized from doing that then by all means do it you know no one's forcing you to put your work down but if you do feel like you're getting overwhelmed, then it's definitely the time to think about how you can fill those empty minutes of your day with something really nice and re-energizing. So well put, Jeremy. Well done. Cool. This is this is excellent. We've touched on a lot today. Thanks so much for being on the show. Love your energy. Even without the coffees, I'm sure you would have been excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I do enjoy my cup of coffee. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. No problem, man. Take it easy. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at AbstractCast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.